Amen. You guys can be seated. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and get them out and go to John chapter 8. Uh, if this is your first time here, welcome. My name is Ben, and I get to be one of the pastors at this uh, church plant. If you uh, didn't grab a bag on your way in, that's a gift for you. We'd love for you to take one home with you. There's a really cool coffee mug in there. So if you're a coffee drinker, you're going to love it because it's huge. Um, if you like tea, you're that's fine too. I mean, you're weird, but <laughs> it's, you can drink tea out of it too. And if you don't like either of those things, I don't know who you are. I don't, I don't know what that's about. Um, but that's a gift, and we'd love for you to, to take that home with you. Also, um, there's a, a Connect card that uh, hopefully you saw in the bag as well. We'd love to connect with you, and, and just thank you for being here. And also, uh, there's some boxes that you can check if you'd like any more information about who we are, if you'd like any more information about what Christianity is in general, uh, or any way at all that we can help you, you can check those boxes on the card, and we'd be happy to follow up with you. Uh, it's hard to believe it, but the truth is that we are over halfway through 2020 right now. Over halfway through what has probably been the worst year of my life. <laughs> like, can we all just nod in agreement with that? I mean, you are wearing masks right now. I'm just happy I get to preach today because I don't have to wear a mask when I'm preaching. And all of you guys are still suffering out there. Um, but it has been such a strange year for so many reasons. Like, we ran out of toilet paper somehow. Toilet paper became like the, the price of gold overnight, which is weird. It still doesn't make sense to me. We weren't able to get together with our friends. We weren't able to go out to eat. Uh, movie theaters were closed, which is devastating for my wife and I because we love movies, love going to the movies. That's like the thing that we love just about more than anything to do together. Uh, Amazon is trying to make us rent movies that are in the theater for like 20 bucks. Anybody else find that just obnoxious? Because we're not paying for the movie, we're paying for the experience. Anyways, that's a soapbox. Okay. Um, we weren't able to worship together for months. We weren't able to pray together in person. We weren't able to, to get together in people's homes for life groups. We had to do this through Zoom. I mean, it was so strange. Even now, we have to wear masks. We have to social distance. And um, we can't get near to anyone who sniffles or we might get a crazy disease. It's just been a really weird year. I think one of the weirdest things that has happened to us as a result of COVID is the fact that um, we've gotten used to checking the U.S. death toll almost on a daily basis. Uh, some people have literally uh, checked it multiple times a day. Some of you are, are literally checking this thing. Some of you are sitting at your computer hitting refresh just to see if it's getting worse, if it's getting bad. That's weird. We didn't do that before 2020. The last time I checked the database, the count was up to 3.29 million confirmed cases and 137,000 deaths. It's been a really bad year, strange year. See, I think we've always been aware of the fact that death is coming for all of us. I think we get the fact that death is egalitarian. I mentioned the Onion article a couple months ago. It was like, you know, despite all of the scientists' efforts, you know, there's still a 100% success rate for death. Like, we all, we all get it, and we're all going to experience it. We get that, but I think in a lot of ways, death has felt like a distant reality. Death is somewhere out there. Um, obviously, we, we come into contact with it. We've all had people who are close to us pass away. It's brutal. It's terrible. Um, but for us, our death is always distant at least in our own minds. 
for most of us. Um, but here and now, in 2020, I, I think it's different. I think this year, death feels front and center. It's not just hanging out in the, in the recesses or the back of the corners of our minds. Like, death is in front of us. And it, in a lot of ways, is dominating everything that we do. Like, you guys are wearing masks right now. I can't even see your face because death is front and center right now. One academic journal published an article about five things that, that COVID-19 has taught us. And the most important of the five is the fact that death needs to be talked about. Maybe for the first time ever. We've realized this year, I think more than ever before, that the control we have over our own lives is, is totally limited. And at any moment, they can be taken from us. You know, Benjamin Franklin, he's the fam- famous founding father, famously said there are only two certain things in life, death and taxes. What, what, I'm, what I'm trying to say is I think right now, we feel the certainty of death. It's... it's palpable, it's tangible, and I think every single one of us are trying to find a way to cope with it, We're trying to find a way to, to deal with it. What I found really interesting this past week as I was studying is how many different ways there are in which people try to cope with death and see which one of these might describe you. Um, first, you can pretend that it, it, it doesn't exist. You can pretend that it's not actually going to happen. Um, uh, like the IndyCar racer, Scott Goodyear, who, who said that uh, in IndyCar, you know, cars are crashing all the time. People are dying uh, on a regular basis. And he said that he wouldn't look at the spot on the track where an accident happened, where a fatal accident occurred. He wouldn't watch the films that highlighted the people, the racers that had died in car crashes. He wouldn't watch the news that talked about the crashes that happened in IndyCar. He needed to act like death didn't happen. On the track. He needed to pretend that it didn't exist. This is actually the stance of IndyCar as a whole, which I'm not an IndyCar person. Maybe some of you are, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. This is just what I read. But throughout the years, a driver has never been pronounced dead on sight. You can't pronounce someone dead at the racetrack. You've got to wait until they're off site. And if you go into the museum that is in the middle of that two and a half mile oval, there's not a single memorial or even mention of the 40 drivers who have died at Indy. They don't mention it. They don't talk about it. It's as if it never happened. We're going to pretend like it doesn't exist. Maybe that's the way that you cope with it, just to pretend that it's not a reality. Others take every caution they possibly can to try to prevent it. So you, you get that it's coming, you get that it's there, it's a reality, and so you're going to do whatever you can to make sure that you live as long as you possibly can. And a really extreme example of this is David Vedder. Uh, if you remember the bubble boy of the 1970s, there was actually a movie made about, kind of about this guy, based on this guy in 2001, which was when I was in high school and I watched stuff like that. Uh, but David was born with SCID, which is a severe combined immunodeficiency. And so his chances of survival were slim to none. So his parents and his doctors decided to keep him in a germ-free bubble 24-7, all the time. Which is why he was nicknamed Bubble Boy. 
He lived in that bubble for 12 years before his disease finally won, but you can watch documentaries about him. You can see all kinds of pictures of him. I mean, we're talking about from being an infant to a 12-year-old boy his entire life, 24-7, he was in a bubble trying to avoid death. Now, most people aren't walking around in bubbles. I get that. And yet some probably would if they could. I think some of you probably would. Like, you're total germaphobes. (laughs) You're like monk. You do everything possible from eating the right things to to washing your hands every 30 minutes to taking all of your vitamins and pills to driving five under the speed limit, which would probably make it more dangerous for you here in Charlotte, by the way. Um, Certainly not riding motorcycles because that's a death wish, just so that you can avoid the inevitable. So some of you cope with death by doing everything you possibly can to avoid it. I think my generation, which is the millennial generation, and maybe all of us to some degree or another, it's not necessarily a generational thing, but I see it really pronounced in mine as the total opposite of this. I think my generation, we're the YOLO generation. And so we look at at death and we try to cope with death with the old proverb, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Yes, death is coming. So let's just go crazy while we're here. And do everything we possibly can to to get as much pleasure as we possibly can, as much happiness as we possibly can, because goodness, tomorrow we're going to die and this is all that we get. And so many of us cope with death, many of my generation cope with death as if we're hedonistic fatalists. It's going to end, none of it matters, so let's just eat, drink, and be merry. One thing is certain, we are all going to die. One thing is becoming more and more evident, and that is the fact that most of us don't know how to deal with it. Trying to find ways to cope with it, trying to grab at some philosophy or some worldview that will help us along the way, but not really being successful in our pursuit. The author of the book of Hebrews wrote this. He said, the entire human race is subject to lifelong slavery through the fear of death. Every single one of us as human beings is subject to lifelong slavery because of death. Which is another way of saying that our inability to deal with death and cope with death and even conquer death leads us to the kind of fear that dominates every aspect of our lives, whether we realize it or not. In 1973, Ernest Becker wrote a a Pulitzer Prize winning book about this, echoing Hebrews. It's called The Denial of Death. And this is his thesis. I think I have a slide for this. He says, the main thesis of this book is that the fear of death haunts the human animal like nothing else. It is a mainspring of human activity, activity designed largely to avoid the fatality of death, to overcome it by denying in some way that it is the final destiny for man. I mentioned a couple of months ago that there are actually billionaires all over the world who have dedicated a massive amount of their fortune to try to come up with a way for us to be immortal. They're trying to come up with a cure for death, and they are investing millions and millions of dollars into this effort. This is exactly what Hebrews is talking about. We are slaves to the fear of death. Our entire lives are marked by a desperate attempt to overcome it, which is why... Christ's words in John chapter 8 are so profound, why they're so impactful, why they weren't just important 2,000 years ago, but why they are so important for you and me today, as 
members of this human race who are desperately afraid of death. Christ says in John chapter 8, If you believe in me, you will never see death. Look at it with me, starting at verse 48. The Jews answered him, Aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? We're jumping into a really heated argument right now, in case you didn't notice that. I am not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. I'm not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Very truly, I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. At this they exclaimed, now we know you are demon possessed. Abraham died. And so did all the prophets, yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I'd be a liar like you. You're picking up all this like really, you know, It's not even passive-aggressive. It's just aggressive. I'd be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I do obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it, and he was glad. You're not 50 years old, they said to him, and you've seen Abraham? He said, very, very, very truly, I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. And at this They picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. If you've been with us for the past couple of weeks, you know that this little dialogue is the end of of a long and heated confrontation between Jesus and an angry mob of Jews that have gathered around him as he's been teaching in the outer courts of the temple. And basically the entire chapter of John chapter 8 is this exchange between Jesus and this mob. And, and the exchange has just been escalating and escalating and escalating. Last week, I think it was last week, he told them that their dad was the devil. So it's getting a little bit worse. By the end of it, they are picking up stones so that they can kill him. That's where we are right now. I think a lot of times when we read the Bible, I think a lot of times when we read the words of Jesus and we read these exchanges, we kind of imagine that they're these peaceful and almost like tranquil scenes of Jesus sitting on a hill with kids on his lap and, and, and the mobs of people just at his feet, just adoring him and looking at him with so much awe and respect. And yeah, there are a few troublemakers in the back, those Pharisees, every once in a while they speak up and Jesus calmly puts them in their place and everyone laughs to themselves. And, and, and this is just how we picture these conversations taking place, at least I have for most of my life. But that's not at all what these confrontations look like. They're not civil. They're not polite. I think I try to imagine like far right on this side of the street, far left on this side of the street, and there's just tension in the air. You got one protest over here. You got a counter protest over here. These people are saying a ton of stuff that those people hate. These people are saying a ton of stuff that these people hate. And not just the stuff they hate. They kind of hate each other a little bit. And all it takes is just one word. All it takes is just one object to be lobbed from that side to the other, and it's going to be pandemonium. 
It's a powder keg just waiting to explode. You kind of have this in your mind, right? That's what John chapter 8 is. John chapter 8 is a powder keg. Jesus is preaching in the temple, and the mob of people don't gather around him because they love him. They gather around him because they hate him, they hate what he's saying, and they want to kill him. And all it takes is just one sentence, one justification. They just need him to to do one thing for them to pick up stones and bash his head in with them. That's what we're looking at in John chapter 8. That's our scene right now. But I love Jesus. He doesn't try to pacify him. (laughs) He doesn't try to calm him down. He doesn't try to appease him. He says two more things on the heels of everything that he said in the entire confrontation. He says two more things. He makes two more statements that he knows are going to push them over the edge and cause them to explode. And those are the two statements that I want to look at today. First, that deathlessness is not just a possibility. Deathlessness is not just a possibility, but that it is a reality for everyone who keeps his word. That's the first statement. The second statement is that he is the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the great I am of Israel. Those are the two statements that he makes that he knows are going to push them over the edge, cause them to pick up stones and try to kill him. And so I want to look at these two statements today with you, the claim of deathlessness, the claim of deity, and then I want to get behind the response of the mob and find where we are in this whole thing, because we're there, believe me. So first, let's look at this claim of deathlessness. Verse 51, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. What does it mean that we will never see death? Death is certain. Every single one of us are going to die. Every single one of those people who are listening to Jesus died. And his followers died brutal deaths. I mean, they were hung up on crosses, they were beheaded, they were skinned alive, they were speared to death. They didn't just pass away in their sleep. They died brutal, painful, torturous deaths. So what does it mean, Jesus says, if you believe in me, you will never die? Was he a liar? Was he wrong? Was this just some kind of sentimental hope? Or was this like a promise from a a delusional madman? No, I don't think so. And And I think the answer actually lies a couple chapters over in John chapter 11. John chapter 11, we get the answer, and we're going to look at John chapter 11 in depth in a couple of weeks, so I'm not going to dive deep here, but look at what what happens. Jesus' close friend Lazarus has died, he's been buried, and yet Jesus says this at the gravesite, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, he will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Did you catch that? Though he die, yet shall he live. In other words, he's dead, but he's not dead. So what in the world does that mean? We're going to get into some anthropology right now. This is going to be so exciting for you. Let me just say it in like five seconds. His body was dead, but his body wasn't essentially who he was. We are not essentially bodies. We are so much more than bodies. We are souls within a temporal house that's called a body. And so, yes, his body was dead. His body was in the grave. And yet his soul was very much alive. Who he truly was, the essence of Lazarus, was very much alive. 
Jesus says it even more explicitly in John chapter 5, verse 24. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me already has eternal life. Not, not our bodies, but our souls within us already have eternal life. He who does not, he does not come into judgment, but has already passed from death to life. That's talking about our true selves. That's talking about our soul within us. We have already passed from death to life. We have already been ushered into eternal life, which remember, if you've been here for a while, the Greek word for eternal life is zoe. And zoe is another word for life to the fullest or the good life or the abundant life. It's not talking about a period of time. It's talking about a quality of life. And so eternal life is something that we've already been bought into, brought into. We've already passed into it. Ephesians 2, 5 through 6 tells us that we have already been made alive in Christ. We were once dead in our transgressions and sins, but now because of his great love for us, we are alive. We've already been seated with him in the heavenly places. That's Ephesians 2, 5 and 6. And so now, what is life to the fullest? What does eternal life look like in, in this age? It means that we experience God. It means that we have fellowship with him and intimacy with him and union with him that cannot ever be broken. See, eternal life is essentially being brought back into the presence of God. That's what we've seen the entire study of, of the Gospel of John. If you're jumping in for the first time today, just go, go to our website and, and listen to the first couple of sermons in, in the Gospel of John that really explains what eternal life actually is. Eternal life essentially is being brought back into the presence of God. That's what satisfies the longings of our souls because we were made for God, but we've been separated from him because of our sin. And so now we're dead in our sin. But when Christ came, he came to bring us back into the presence of the Father. That will not end ever. It, it is inaugurated, we receive it at the moment of salvation, and death cannot interrupt it. It lasts forever. Eternity is now in session. I don't know if you remember that from, man, like a year ago. Eternity is now in session. And so, as believers, we won't see or taste death. Our bodies might die, but we won't. I love how D.L. Moody put it. D.L. Moody once, once wrote this or, or preached this. I can't even remember. I wasn't there. But he said, someday you will read in the papers that D.L. Moody of East Northfield is dead. Don't you believe a word of it? At that moment, I will be more alive than I am now. I will have gone up higher. That is all out of this old clay tenement into a house that is immortal, a body that death cannot touch, that sin cannot taint, a body fashioned like unto his glorious body. I was born of the flesh in 1837. I was born of the spirit in 1856. That which is born of the flesh may die, but that which is born of the spirit will live forever. That's what Jesus is talking about. Deathlessness is something that happens to those who believe in him, and it happens in a way that is spiritual, and it's essential to who we are as human beings. Our bodies might be in the grave, but we will be with him 
and heaven. The late philosopher Dallas Willard, who is just one of the greatest thinkers of, of our, our generation. He's, he's passed away now. Um, but if you're ever looking for some really like deep, intellectual, and yet really engaging uh, philosophy related to, to God and Christianity and life in the kingdom, Dallas Willard is the man. Uh, his book, Divine Conspiracy, I would highly recommend to you. Look at how he summed it up, and I think he sums it up perfectly. He says, for the godly, death is nothing. Have no fear of those who can only kill the body, Jesus says in Matthew 10. We will not even experience death, he says in John 8. We will, in fact, not die. Such is the understanding of the New Testament as a whole. Those who live in reliance upon the word and the person of Jesus and know by experience the reality of his kingdom. Again, the kingdom is synonymous with life to the fullest. The kingdom of God is eternal life. The kingdom of God is the good life, okay? Are always better off dead from the personal view. We live in the knowledge that, as Paul elsewhere says, Jesus the anointed has abolished death and through the gospel made life and immortality obvious. That's the first claim that Christ makes. That deathlessness is not just a possibility, but for all who believe in him and who obey his words, it is a reality. We don't have to fear death anymore. We don't have to try to find a way to cope with it anymore because Jesus has already defeated it and brought us into eternal life. The second claim that he makes is just as important because it shows us why we can be confident that his first claim isn't just some empty promise made by a delusional teacher. You see, if Jesus was just a man, you will never see death means absolutely nothing. I could say that to you. I could say, hey man, follow me. Uh, obey me. You'll never die. Like, I would expect you to scoff at me. I would expect you to laugh in my face. Maybe punch me in the face. If I'm just a man, that means absolutely nothing. If Jesus is just a man, it's the same thing. But if Jesus was actually God, it means everything. You can actually bank your life on it. You can trust it. You can believe it, that it's actually true. And so he doesn't just claim that death, deathlessness is possible. He backs it up by claiming to be the God who makes it possible. Now, just a hint, this is why they pick up stones to try to kill him. Because it's one thing to claim that deathlessness is possible. It's another thing to claim to be the God who makes it possible, to be their God. Look at verse 54, and I'll show you how he does this. Jesus says, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, who you call your God, my dad, is the one that you call your God. He's the one who glorifies me. Though you don't know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I'd be a liar like you, but I do know him and I obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and he was glad. And they said, you're not even 50 years old. How have you seen Abraham? And he says, truly I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. I am. Now we, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Um, but just to remind you, that phrase, I am, in the Hebrew, 
is actually the name that Israel used for God. It's the name that that God introduced himself with when he was talking to Moses in the burning bush. He said, tell Pharaoh and tell Egypt, tell the people of Israel that I am sent you. And so if you study the Old Testament, thousands of times throughout the Old Testament, God is referred to as I am. So what what Jesus is saying is, listen, um, I I know you think you belong to Abraham. I know you think that you're sons of God and all this kind of stuff, but... I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. I'm the God who spoke to Moses in the burning bush that delivered all of your parents and grandparents and great-grandparents from Israel, from Egypt. I am, I am. Essentially, he's saying, I am your God. Not just another God, because the Romans had a ton of gods. Nero was a God. Not just another God. I'm your God the one true God, the God of your fathers. That's what he's saying here, which is why he had the power. It's why he had the authority to say, if anyone believes in me and keeps my word, they'll never see death. This is the point that you and I have to see, guys. Deathlessness is only possible if there is a deity who has sovereign power, sovereign authority, sovereign control over life and death. Do you get that? Deathlessness is only possible if there is a deity who has control, authority, and power over life and death. And Jesus is claiming to be that deity. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just some revolutionary thinker. He's not just Gandhi. He's not just out there helping the poor. Jesus is claiming to be the one who controls life and death, who holds it in his hand. The problem for that mob back then is the same problem that you and I face today as well. And that's the fact that we want deathlessness, but we don't want Christ. We don't want a God above us. We don't want there to actually be a deity. We want to be our own gods. We don't want to submit to his truth. We want to create our own truth. How fun is that? What's true for you is good for you. What's true for me is good for me. Until someone slaps you on the face and says, well, that was my truth, right? But we still like the idea because it it sets us free to do whatever we want. We want to create our own truth. We don't want to keep and follow his word. We want to follow the passions and the desires of our own hearts. Do whatever we want. We want immortality, but we don't want an immortal God who demands morality. We don't want to taste death But at the same time, we have no taste in our mouths for God. So rather than turning to him, we bend over, we pick up the biggest stone we can find, and we look for him so that we can knock him off. This is what Friedrich Nietzsche did, or he tried to do philosophically. Philosophically, he tried to 
knock God off. He's famously said God is dead and we're the ones who've killed him. And so now we have become divine in his place. We've become gods in his place. And yet the irony, the irony of of Nietzsche is tragic. Because in his attempt to liberate himself from the oppression of God or what he viewed as the oppression of God, he enslaved himself to himself. He actually said, if God isn't real, then the entire world is going to step into madness. And then he proved that for the last 15 years of his life, he lived as a madman. It's what Aldous Huxley tried to do 75 years ago, and I mentioned him last week. He coined the term agnostic. He created a worldview that was void of meaning and void of morality and void of purpose so that in his own words, he could justify all of his erotic passions. He was justifying his erotic revolt against God. For being honest with ourselves, this is what we all do. We're all the same. <laughs> no, no one in here is different from anybody else, okay? We all do this. We want eternal life, but we just don't want to have to follow and to submit to the God who possesses it. But the truth is that apart from Christ, it isn't possible. Because it's only through the life, death, and resurrection of God himself that deathlessness can be our reality. Look at how Paul put it in his letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through one man, Adam, The resurrection of the dead comes also through a man, Jesus. For as in Adam, we all die. But in Christ, we all will be made alive. Every single one of us is a slave to death and a slave to the fear of death because we are all descendants of Adam. And from Adam, death came into the world. And so what we need if we want to experience deathlessness is for a new Adam to come in. To succeed where the old Adam failed. To obey the word of his father perfectly, even to the point of death. To die in our place. To take away death from us and the punishment that death earned for us. And then rise again, securing life for us. That's the only way life happens. Hebrews 2, 14 through 15. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity talking about Jesus, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, so that he can free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. The death of the perfect and spotless Lamb of God is the only thing that has the power to defeat death in us. And his resurrection is the only thing that has the power to guarantee eternal life for us as well. And so we need his blood to atone for our sin. That's what we've been singing about. That's what we've been reminding ourselves every single time we, we, we come here. That we need his blood to atone for our sins. We need his death to cover our crimes. We need his resurrection to seal us for eternity. Deathlessness apart from God is nothing more than a pipe dream, guys. But in Christ... It has become our reality. Do you believe that? 
that you've been made alive, that you have already been seated in heaven with Christ, that when he looks at you, he doesn't see who you are today, but he sees who you are 10 billion years into the future in glory. Let that blow your mind a little bit. That's the gospel, that we who were once dead have been made alive together in Christ. Can I get an amen through your masks? And so if you believe in him, if you will believe in him, if if you will trust in him, if you'll keep his word, you will never see death. And yet some of you have never done that. Some of you are still trying to find your, your own ways to cope without God. Some of you are still you know, trying to do everything you can to, to live in a bubble, to spare yourself of germs so that you can just prolong the inevitable. But it is appointed for all men once to die. And after death, we'll stand before the God that we tried to kill off, that we tried to pretend wasn't there. And we're going to give an account for this life. And Jesus says, I didn't come for judgment. I didn't come for judgment. I came for mercy. See, he's talking to a mob who hates him. He's talking to a mob of people who want to kill him, and he knows that, and he's judging them with his speech. He says, you're of the father, the, you're tough, the father of the devil. He says, you speak lies just like your father did, and he's judging them, but he doesn't stop with judgment. He holds out this invitation to that mob, and he says, if you'll just believe in me, you'll, you'll never see death. And so even in his judgment, he's there with mercy, And the same thing's true for you today. You are dead in your sins. You are dead apart from Christ because of Adam and there's nothing you can do to cope with it. But he holds out mercy and he says, if you would trust me, I can bring you back to God. Some of you maybe today need to stop running from him. Stop all of your efforts and futility of trying to cope with death and trust in Christ think about Oscar Wilde, and I'll close with this. He was the, the quintessential hedonist. If you know anything about Oscar Wilde, he's the man who lived without any moral boundaries whatsoever, who had rebelled against the divine authority in his life for almost his entire adult life. The term that was used to describe Oscar Wilde was, was dandyism. And yet, as he was dying in his 40s, he began to question Everything that he had built his life upon. The story of his death is shocking, and it's, it's also profound. He's, he's on his deathbed in Paris. He looks to his lover, Robbie, Robbie Ross, and he asks him the most shocking question a hedonist could ever ask. He looks at Robbie, and he says, Robbie, did you ever love any of those young boys for their own sake? What? A hedonist talking about love? What is that? Robbie said, no, I didn't, Oscar. Robbie looked at him and he said, Robbie, I'm sorry, Oscar looked at him and he said, Robbie, neither did I. Call me a priest. In his poem, The Ballad of Reading Jail, he compares his life in prison there to the woman with the alabaster ointment who breaks it pours it on the feet of Jesus, and he says, for only Christ is big enough to cleanse this heart. Only blood 
can wipe away blood. Only the blood of Christ can wash away my own blood. The only thing that can get rid of death in us is death. It is the death of the Son of God. The only thing that can make us pure and wash the blood off of our hands is the untainted blood of Jesus Christ. Turn to him today. Believe in him. Trust in him. Submit to him. Follow him. Life and life to the fullest is on the other side of obedience.